Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Here in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1, we're going to look at five different issues for the servant. And there are many issues that could be addressed, of course. I look at this passage of Scripture and it kind of reminds me of the Proverbs. Now, the Proverbs are not haphazard, but sometimes when you read the Proverbs, sometimes there's, you know, three, four, five verses together that are grouped together, but most of the Proverbs, one verse is a proverb, the next verse is a different proverb, and they seem somewhat unrelated. I think there's probably a relation between all of this. I'm not sure I've figured it all out, so we're just going to call these five different issues that the Lord is trying to teach his disciples. It says in verse 34, chapter 8 of Mark, verse 34, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We're going to divide each one of these verses into five different issues. The first issue is the issue of discipleship. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That can be summarized as discipleship. And, of course, the servant of the Lord needs to be a disciple. And there are, I'm going to call them four stages of this discipleship that are mentioned in this verse. You need to come after me. But notice there is a will, whosoever will come after me. So the first stage is the will to follow the Lord, or the will to come after the Lord. You need to be willing. Now, this can apply to the person who comes to know Christ as Savior initially. But as we've learned over the years, a lot of what happens when we get saved happens to us as a a mature Christian as well. We don't get saved all over again. It's like Paul said, I forget whether it was to the Galatians or whoever, As you receive Christ, so walk in Him. Okay, So we get saved by faith. Initially, we need to walk by faith. And so when we come to Christ, there has to be a willingness to come to Christ. Well, that's true for us as a Christian. You have to have a willingness to get right with the Lord if you get out of sorts with the Lord. So the first stage is being willing to come. If you're going to be a disciple... You have to be willing. You have to be willing to get saved. So the sinner who comes to Christ must be willing to come to Christ. He needs to be convinced of his sin and his need for a Savior. So with us, we need to be willing to get right with God when we get out of sorts with him. So will to come. Whosoever will come after me, and then the second stage, let him deny himself. It fits together 
you really don't have the first one without the second part. You're not really willing to come, but yet it's the next stage. I can sense where there might be somebody who might be willing, but then they don't take the next stage and deny themselves. Well, yeah, I want to get to heaven. I want to get saved, but I don't want to deny myself. If I get saved, I'm going to give up some stuff. Well, amen. But we do the same thing as a Christian. If I get right with God, I'm going to have to give up this sin that's keeping me from the Lord. And so willingness to come and then denying ourselves. Let him deny himself. Disown, disregard, forsake, reject, refuse, restrain, disclaim, do without. A lot of things that could be involved in that denying of self. You know, our problem in life is self. D.L. Moody said, the problem I have most is the fellow walks under my hat. You have problems most with you than you do anybody else. Self. Self always gets in the way. Pride is always a problem. So, denying self, the second stage. Then there's, I think, a third stage. The third stage is to take up his cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. You've probably heard it before. Someone has pointed out that uh, it's not Christ's cross that we take up, but our cross. Now, we know that the Lord had to carry his cross, but this was a practice in the Roman culture when a criminal was crucified. They made him carry his cross. Bear your own burden, Paul told the Galatians. But your cross is different than my cross. And we don't take up the cross of Christ. We can't die like Christ did for the sins of the whole world. There are things that we have to bear. And so that I see as a third stage, take up his cross. And then the fourth stage, and follow me. And I don't know whether there's anything really to this or not, but I can kind of sense there might be a, a place somewhere along the way where we stop short. King Agrippa said, Thou almost persuaded me to become a Christian. How far along was he in this process of coming to know Christ as Savior? And when we get saved at the moment of time, I understand that, but there's things that have to happen in our hearts and in our lives. And the same thing with us as a believer. Is there a stage somewhere along the way where we stop the process, we're willing, we deny ourselves, but we fail to take up our cross, or we fail to follow the Lord? You know, uh, So I can see these as stages here. Come, follow me. This was really the call that Jesus made to all of his disciples when Peter and John were fishing. Come, follow me. They left their nets and followed the Lord. So four stages of discipleship. There's another issue. Verse 35. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's the same shall save it. This is the issue of life. The issue of life is saving life or losing life. And, uh, of course, Jesus is making a surprising statement. It's familiar to us because we've heard these passages before. But if you preach this to the world, it's strange to them. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. They teach, if you're going to save your life, you better save it. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you need to lose it. So if a man wished to save his life, he's got to lose his life. It's a follow-up of verse number 34, denying yourself, taking up a cross, following the Lord. But there's at least uh, two key phrases here. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but 
the converse of doubt, whosoever shall lose his life, and then he adds a, a, a two prepositional phrases, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, or the gospel's sake. So, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Let's talk about that first one, that first phrase, for my sake. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake. You see, you can lose your life not for the sake of the Lord, but for your own sake, or for the sake of your loved one, or for whatever, the sake of your business, or the sake of your country. There's a lot of veterans who think that they have a place in heaven because they gave their lives for their country. And they talk about their comrades in the service and so forth and so on. I get a little cringed when I have to do a funeral in connection with a former uh, or serviceman and they, whatever group has to come and they have to do their little ditty because they're, they're not scriptural on all of that. For my sake, the person who abandons his life or sacrifices, gives all that he has for Christ, will save his life. But the person who keeps his life and what he has and seeks more and more shall lose his life completely and eternally. So there's two concepts here, verse 35, whosoever will save his life and whosoever will lose his life. If you're saving your life, here's some one scenario, you can try to do whatever you can to avoid aging, decaying, or dying, even theologically. Come up with some kind of a theology that says, uh, you know, when you quote-unquote die, you don't really die, you become reincarnated and whatnot else. You're really denying Christ and you lose your life eternally. So all that you're trying to do to save that life, find that fountain of youth, whatever it is, the man who seeks his life more and more uh, comfortably, he's trying to save his life comfortably. I'm not saying you ought not to use comfortable things and utilize things that don't make you work so hard or whatever, but to secure life beyond what is necessary and he neglects Christ, he loses his life. That's our world today. They're trying to make everything comfortable, even our medical world. You can go in for a heart attack and they can do something to you medically and keep you alive. Well, what happens if that person rejects Christ? He lives a longer life. He saved his life for a little bit longer, but he didn't trust Christ the Savior. He's going to lose his life. How about the person that tries to gain wealth and power and fame through his life? preserving, saving his life that way. Lots of folks think that the life is valueless without the right kind of credential, financially, educationally, whatever. So we'll try our best to save our life, so to speak, by getting the credentials, by getting the expertise and so forth. But you compromise Christ, you still lose your life eternally. What about the fellow, the young people seem to be more involved with this. The older we get, the wiser we seem to get with things. But the young people seem to think that all the thrills and excitement, you know, the living for the weekend type idea, and the stimulation of the world, I'm going to save my life. I'm going to do things that are exciting. And he ignores Christ. He loses his life eternally. And then the next phrase in the passage is, for the gospel's sake, for my sake, for the Lord's sake, and for the gospel's sake. 
So we're losing our life for the gospel's sake. The same, he says, shall save it. So the person who abandons his life, or this life, going back to verse 34, denying himself, and who sacrifices and gives all that he has for the gospel, shall save his life. Now, this verse can be applied to mission. A man or woman who surrenders their life to go to the mission field to give up, but it doesn't necessarily have to be for a person going to the mission field. It can be any one of us doing life for the gospel's sake. So the job I have, the money that I make, the bank account, the friends that I have, the ministries that I do or do not do, I'm doing for the sake of the gospel. So I work for the gospel's sake. That's God's pattern. That's God's way. Whatever I do in life, I'm to do for the Lord's sake and for the gospel's sake. Now, in my case, I'm doing it to support uh, the ministry, and I think that's the way you ought to do that. You say, you have a job so you can support your family. Well, yes, but you have your job for the sake of the gospel. That's the way we ought to look at life. And the person who saves his life, but he lies around the home and all of the comforts of his home, and doesn't do anything for the gospel's sake, according to these verses, he's going to lose his life. The person who spends all that he has on himself and on his family doesn't do it for the gospel's sake, he loses his life. The person who takes all his time for his own affairs and his own desires shall lose his life. But whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel, and so a person who is an explorer or a pioneer for Christ, and it doesn't have to be a missionary, can be anybody, he is going to save his life. Of course, we temper all of this. We understand the gospel, right? You don't save your life by doing everything for the gospel. You save your life, first of all, initially, by coming to know Christ the Savior. We understand that. Jesus understood that. He's not teaching another gospel. All right? He's teaching the same gospel that the Bible preaches. And whosoever sacrifices and gives to the gospel, so our giving, our sharing, our praying, the things, the very, very things, simple things that we do every day in our Christian life, all of those sacrificing, giving for the gospel, he's going to save his life. We don't have to be a missionary. We can be an everyday missionary Christian to give ourselves and our money to the work of the Lord for the gospel's sake. Whoever gives his time for the gospel, visiting people, teaching, sharing that gospel, witnessing, ministering, whatever way, shall save his life. That's what the Bible's teaching. Of course, that's all tempered again with the matter of salvation. All right, issue number three. First issue was the issue of discipleship. The second issue is the issue of life, saving life or losing life, and it's supposed to be for my sake and for the gospel's sake. The third issue, verses 36 and 37, is the value of the soul. Jesus needed to teach his disciples the value of the soul. Verse 36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The value of the soul. Notice the if clause here. Back in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 8 and verse number 36, For what shall it profit a man if 
he shall gain the whole world. Nobody can gain the whole world. But if you could, if you could own the whole world, what profit would it be if you lost your own soul? Comparative, your own soul is small compared to the entire world, but notice the contrast. The soul, the value of the human soul, it is important. You see, the human soul is important for at least four reasons. Everything else in life will fade away. Everything we live for, the houses, the land, the money, even the relationship. We're living for our relationships with our family and our friends. All of that is going to fade away. Everything fades and passes away. A person possesses something for a short period of time. And I mean by your lifetime, okay? If you buy a house, for instance, you may possess that house for your lifetime. What happens when you die? It's not yours anymore. It's gone. Now, you can't do anything about it. Once you pass off the scene, it goes wherever it goes. To your family, perhaps, or to the state, or whoever gets it. It's not yours anymore. It's only yours for a short period of time. Same thing with your money. You say, well, I pass it along to my children, my heirs. Well, yes, but it's not yours. You're done with it. You can't use it to buy your way into heaven or anything. It's gone. Well, the only thing you have left, the only thing you have left is your soul. That's it. Everything cannot be used all at once. That's an awesome thought too, huh? Let's say you own two vehicles. It doesn't matter. Maybe you only have one. Let's say you have one. You can apply it if you have two or three or four or five. Are you always driving that car? No. It sets in your driveway or garage or on the street somewhere some part of the day. How about the house that you own? Are you always using that house? No. Sometimes part of the day it's not being used. Nobody's home. It sets empty. Ladies, do you have stuff stuffed away in a cupboard somewhere? Your Christmas decorations? How often do you use those? Once a year. Or any other seasonal decoration. You can't use everything that you have all of the time. Okay? It's limited. Everything sits unused for most of the time. Your soul it should be used all the time. So the soul is more valuable than anything that you possess. The human soul, third reason, is eternal. All of these other things are temporal. But your soul is eternal. We believe in the eternality of the soul. I don't understand theologically where the soul comes from. There's theological issues and uh, opinions about that. But I do know this. Once the soul exists, it's an eternal soul. It will last forever somewhere, an eternal soul. And then the human soul is, of course, of more value than the whole world. We're getting that from this very passage of Scripture. What is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall he give in exchange for his soul? Verse 36, what, profit, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give 
in exchange for his soul. You, that, that There's nothing to give in exchange for his soul. The fourth issue is the issue of the Messiah. And that's verse 38. Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me, that's Christ, the Messiah, and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The issue of the Messiah. So what we're talking about here is being ashamed of Christ versus confessing Christ. Which will it be? Now, Christ is the true Messiah. He is it. It's, he mentions here him and me and my word. He and his word. And what you do with Christ and what you do with his word will determine your eternal destiny. Now, we also learn that a man can be ashamed of Christ. I like what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God. Are we ashamed of Christ? Just earlier, a couple chapters previous, the Lord asked his disciples, whom do men say that I am? And then he asked the disciples, and Peter answered, thou art the Christ. Whom do you say that I am? And Peter's answer was the correct answer, thou art the Christ. Thou art the Messiah. Okay, A man can be ashamed of Christ, and of course some men are ashamed of Christ. We're afraid as Christians sometimes to speak his name. That's being ashamed of Christ. We may not deny him outwardly, but we deny him by not speaking a word or maybe an act or just silence. The world makes it difficult to confess Christ. They don't make it easy. And in some parts of the world, places in the world, they make it more difficult than other places. Notice what Jesus says here, in this adulterous and sinful generation. Well, in an adulterous and sinful generation, it is difficult to confess Christ. They don't want to hear about Christ. And it makes it difficult to do that. But if we're going to not be ashamed of Christ, we need to confess him nonetheless. We also learn that the day of Christ is coming. He says, Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I believe that's probably a reference to the second coming of Christ. When the Lord, of course, comes with his holy angels. And there's an inference here that when he comes, there will be judgment. Because he's talking about being ashamed. Being ashamed. Why would we be ashamed at his coming? Because there's a judgment attached with it for us as Christians. It's the uh, a judgment seat of Christ. So Paul prayed and taught us that we ought to live in such a fashion that we're not ashamed at his coming. What do you do with Christ? Jesus was trying to teach his disciples about the issue of the Messiah. Okay, so we have four issues so far. We have the issue of discipleship. Will you be my disciples? If so, then you need to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. There's the issue of life. Will you save your life or will you lose your life? And the two qualifying phrases, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. There is the issue of the value of the soul. How much value do you put on the soul? Is it more important than gaining the whole world? Issue number four, the issue of the Messiah. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the Christ? If so, then you cannot be ashamed of him. You must confess him before the world. The last issue is the issue of death. And that's chapter 9, verse 1. 
And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And then from there, and this will be the next lesson in Mark's Gospel, the transfiguration of Christ. Okay, so the issue of death. And there's two opposites here. Shall not taste of death until you see the kingdom of God. And tasting death or seeing the kingdom of God. Now think with me a little bit here about this. There's a little bit of a question as to what it, uh, what Jesus meant here. Of course, we understand that if he's referring to these disciples, there he says, there be some of them that stand here. Everybody that stood there at this time when Jesus taught this, all of them tasted death because the Lord hasn't come yet. They tasted death before the second coming of the Lord. So it's possible that Jesus had a different meaning to this passage than the second coming of the Lord. It might be a reference to the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, we'll see in the next couple of verses, went up with the Lord into the mount to see the Lord. A vision, perhaps you might say, of the kingdom of God. Maybe that's what he's referring to. But let's make a practical application of this and compare tasting death with seeing the kingdom of God. Let me take you to John's Gospel, John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So seeing the kingdom of God is tantamount to being born again. Okay, So in other words, only saved folks can see the kingdom of God. Right. We got that? We understand what that's all about? Seeing the kingdom of God. Now, who tastes death? Well, let's suppose a fellow dies without Christ. He tastes death. Does he see the kingdom of God? No, he's not saved. All right, let's suppose a fellow dies with Christ. He's a Christian. Does he taste death? Yes. Does he see the kingdom of God? Yes. Okay, so he tastes death, but he does see the kingdom of God. Let's say a fellow is taken in the rapture. Does he taste death? No. Does he see the kingdom of God? Yes. And then let's suppose that Jesus is talking about the disciples that went up to the mount to see transfiguration. Did they taste death? Not yet. Okay. They did not taste, Peter, James, and John are still alive at the transfiguration. Did they see the kingdom of God? Yes, in the transfiguration. That's possibly what the Lord is referring to. But by way of making the application, you and I have a choice between, or let's say mankind has a choice of tasting death or seeing the kingdom of God. You can taste death without Christ and not see the kingdom of God. The only way to see the kingdom of God is to be born again. And so I think that's probably part of what Jesus is trying to get across to these men. It's a difficult passage of scripture here, Matthew chapter or Mark chapter 9 verse number 1, what it is that Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples, but don't say that this contradicts anything. Otherwise, you got a bad Bible. And now we're in big trouble.
right? There is no contradiction here. The only contradiction is right here between these ears, okay? I don't understand what this verse is about, totally. And so let's give the Lord the benefit of the doubt, amen? And it's not wrong. It's a right verse. So he's not saying that, hey, there's some disciples here who are not going to die until the kingdom of God comes along. Well, we know that all those disciples died. So probably our initial interpretation of this verse is not correct. And we have the tendency to equate the second coming of the Lord in verse 38 of chapter 8 with the kingdom of God in chapter 9 and verse number 1. I think probably the latter is the case, that the Lord is referring to the transfiguration that was about to take place. Uh, in all the Gospels, that seems to be the order. And I need to quit here. But five issues that need to, the disciple needs to, the servant of the Lord needs to face, the issue of discipleship, the issue of life, the issue of the value of the soul, the issue of the Messiah, and the issue of death. This is Dr. Lee Hennies, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached at church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again. Mm-hmm.